0: It's good to be with you this morning. If you have little ones through grade four, I saw a herd go out earlier, but you can follow that if you'd like and make sure that your little ones get to go downstairs through grade four. If you'd like them to be in an age appropriate service, please do that at this time. Somebody to turn, Alex, if you turn those lights on right there, would you? They are, uh, there you go. Thank you. Appreciate that. Turning your copy of God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter five, we return to our study this morning after being off for a little while. Having many uh, fun things that we did over the last several weeks and uh, last week, Mother's Day and, and child dedication, a lot of fun with uh, our parents, and so a joy to be in a church with little ones. God's plan for a healthy church is the name of our study—a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We are in Second Corinthians now, chapter five, having completed our First Corinthians study and all the way up to this chapter. Confidence in the future is Paul's topic, as we've seen over the last several weeks prior to our break, and confidence in final judgment is his specific uh, attention now. And if you're new with us today, we're going to be returning here. Paul has made as his focus, uh, as he reveals his heart to the church, his confidence, and by our relationship to God uh, through Jesus, our confidence in the future. We started in verses 1 through 8 realizing the confidence we can have in death, and we took a lot of time with that and we won't go back over all of that but if uh, even though we've been off for a while but you can catch up online if you missed any of it but today we're going to pick up in verses 9 and 10 I'd like get a turn there if you would and take a look at the confidence a believer can have in final judgment and is is our habit we're going to just look verse by verse word by word through the word exegetical expository type of of uh time together i i trust that you've been in the word this week because if you haven't been you're starving this morning the Lord prepared you to do that and as He made you, He made you for His Word. He made His Word for you. And so let me encourage you, if you've not been regularly in the Word each day, that uh, you can take a trifold from the back there on the uh, welcome table and help you kind of Put a plan together if you're in U version, they have plenty of plans that can help you get through the Word on a yearly basis. And my encouragement to you is of course to do that where you'll really begin to grow as a believer, understand God's will for you, because He has one will uh, that He reveals through His Holy Spirit, and you'll understand that holy standard that needs to be in front of you all the time, that you can live by that and be and be made mature through the sanctification of the Word. So be in the Word each week. I'll be reading New American Standard. You can find that in front of you in the chair or just read in your copy. Uh, God's word that you regularly read and memorize and i'll give you verse cues and we'll stay together Pick up at verse 9. It says therefore uh, We also have as our ambition Whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him for verse 10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done Whether good or bad. Let's just stop right there now this passage really follows on the heels of a section of scripture where Paul reveals his greatest longing, and that is to be with Christ. Uh, we saw that he had some priorities, and we can pick those up from his letters to understand what the priorities were for Paul. We saw early in this uh, chapter, Paul's first priority would be to live until Jesus comes. So he looks forward to the rapture, uh, the sooner the better, perhaps that's uh, the option Uh, All of us would put in first place that we'd like to live until the rapture occurs and the Lord to take us away And we saw that in his language early on in this chapter. Paul's second preference seems to be death And uh, that shouldn't surprise us. In other words, Paul would say likely If I can't be alive until the rapture, then I'd prefer to die and the sooner the better because I want to be with Jesus And we've looked at a number of passages that would indicate that that is certainly Paul's longing uh, Not the least of which is Philippians 1.23 where he really gives us two of his priorities here back-to-back He says, I'm hard pressed from both directions. Which directions, Paul? Well, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. And that is far better. Yet, verse 24, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so that would be the third priority for Paul. First one would be to be taken in the rapture. Second would be to be, go ahead and be martyred and be with Christ. Or the third one would be, I'll have to live and really kind of that's how he kind of looked at it in other words Paul would say you know I'm fine with finishing out my race and then the lord will take me to be with him I'm fine with the lord catching me away in the rapture but I'm either and, and if i have to die either by martyrdom or death in some way so i can be with the lord but if i have to live and that's better for you then i'll stay on in the flesh and that's really paul's priorities as he looks at his life and so uh and towards the end of this section, he draws our attention to the surety and the joy of every believer's transformation and final destination. So he says in verse six, and you can just look right back up there, just a couple of verses. In verse six, he says, therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, and we talked about the body and its temporary situation, its tent, and all the illustrations Paul uses, therefore, uh, we are at home in the body. If we're at home in the body, we're absent, he says, from the Lord, mark this, for we walk by faith not by sight. We understand all these things by faith, and we looked at all of that. Uh, we are of good courage, so no matter what's coming along, no matter how long the Lord makes us wait, no matter what we have to go through, I say, and then he says, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So we can kind of see Paul's priorities, again, wrapped up in those verses. Every believer, I think, as we ended last time together, every believer should be able to, and I would even go as far as should say. With confident faith, I prefer to be and I long to be absent from this body and at home with the Lord. We should be able to say that together with, with Paul. That's not a stretch, I don't think. We we long for that transformation and final destination. The older we get and the more difficulties we have, of course, or perhaps when we're young we have difficulty. That would be a preference, perhaps to be at home with the Lord. We should long for it like a thirsty man longs for a drink or a poor man longs for payday or, or a soldier longs for peace. And I think we would be right in saying that if we don't long for it, then something's wrong. And, and we learned that if we can't honestly articulate facing death with joy and with anticipation, and I'm not talking about perhaps the pain and suffering physically uh, necessarily that could be associated with death, but death itself, if we don't face it with joy and anticipation, then perhaps Paul's unspoken point here is that we have come to idolize the passing world. And we have come to settle for fading joy. We prefer shadow instead of day. We've learned to be content with sinful surroundings. We accept and cherish our fallenness and overestimate earthly relationships. Any of those could be playing a part. If we can't say together with Paul with joy, saying, I look forward to being with Christ and the sooner the better, then some of these have to be true. And, and, you know, I called you to that, that wrestling at the end of our series before we broke for the number of things that we've been doing. And I call you back there again. If you can't say that with joy, if you can't say along with Paul, you know, I'm of good courage and I say prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord, then some of these things are true. And that, that requires some introspection and some change on your part. So Paul calls really this moment in other places, he calls it the redemption of our bodies. If you're having some health problems, you might look forward to that. And as we saw, whether that's a future resurrection of our bodies if we die before the rapture or it's the instantaneous resurrection of our bodies at the trumpet, it really doesn't matter. It's a transformation. Paul longs for it. It's a future longing that will be realized for every believer. And it is the sure reality of all redeemed persons. Now, mark this uh, because that is true, okay, because you are going to be transformed, because you're either going to be caught away in the rapture or you're going to you're going to die before the rapture comes and you're uh, you're going to be at, at home with the lord waiting for your resurrected body. But because that's true and we will see the lord, see. Whether sooner or later, then the next two verses make a lot of sense. So in the very next verse, look at verse 9 if you would. Therefore, because that's the case. See, that's why he says therefore because it's the case that we will be transformed, okay? We will see the lord. We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent. So he uses the same type of uh, understanding. Whether at home with the Lord or absent from the Lord, so you're here in your temporary body. We have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Now, why does he remind them of this? See, why why are these the next two verses? Well, it's connected, right? I mean, just kind of obvious here. And um, Paul wants us to have confidence in the future, And he is speaking about a judgment seat of christ and this judgment Was one of the greatest motivating forces in the life of paul paul looked forward To this time where he would be with the lord and he talks about it directly in two different times In these two letters and we'll do that as well and cross-reference both those times And so it's important and we're going to take a little time with it to make sure that you understand it because it was paul's primary motivation The fact that he would see the lord and there would be an accounting Was paul's primary motivation to do what he does in this life and I think it should be ours as well and so, if you remember, some of the background that we've gone through, this Corinthian church is a church that was fleshly. They were, they were fleshly, they were carnal. And now we know every believer positionally is spiritual. In position, you were holy before the Lord. The Lord made you that way at salvation. But not every believer is practically spiritual, right? And we should all struggle with that. We understand the day by day, struggling with the flesh and, and all the difficulties that come along. And the, and, the, and the longer you were unredeemed before you became redeemed... Perhaps the more appetite the flesh still has and desires to have, or perhaps you came to faith early and you don't know what you were saved from and you think the world holds some delight and perhaps there's some fleshliness uh, then being bore out in your life. So we know a believer is positionally spiritual, positionally holy, but not every believer is practically spiritual. And if he or she is not practically spiritual, then they're fleshly, Okay. And that just means you're desiring the things of the world above the things of Christ. That means you you're at home here, and more at home here than you would be in heaven, and you long to stay here. And there, there's just all kinds of symptoms that can be part of that, and you can identify those in your life if that's the case. But if you're if you're not practically spiritual, so you're not spending time in the Word each day and putting the death to deeds of the flesh and and walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the desires of the flesh, that's how Paul describes that. If you're not doing that then you're in then you're carnal and we know that this church was and we know as well if a believer is acting in a fleshly manner long enough that they stunt their spiritual growth they become what James calls a forgetful hearer. Maybe you've experienced that with some people that you know, a forgetful hearer, someone you would have understood to be born again but now doesn't live like that. You live long enough in the flesh you become a forgetful hearer. So to this Corinthian church that had been taught so much by Paul and, and Apollos and some by Peter and some by Jesus, and we saw all of that early on in our first study. But because of their fleshliness and their worldliness, Paul says, in essence, you've regressed and I had to give you milk first, but but you people know too much to be treated this way. I'm still having to treat you like a baby. Even after all this time, I'm still giving you milk. So this is, as Paul starts this whole understanding in his first letter that we have preserved for us, he's just saying to the church, you know, I have to talk to you as if you were untaught and unskilled because that's how you're acting. And spiritual ignorance and fleshliness are really tied inseparably together. And there are these people in their fleshliness have absolutely voided the things that they were hearing, see. And, and they were involved in factions, they were backbiting, they were gossiping, and they thought they were right, and they didn't even have the receptivity to take Paul's instruction, see. And so we've seen that over and over again. And, and it's not that far away from the modern church. The modern church suffers with this as well. And they had started to move backwards, and they were a forgetful hearer. And the danger, of course, always is, with, with fleshly people, that they can't, or they refuse to comprehend clear teaching, Uh, Paul spent a year and a half with them. Apollos had been with them for four years. Paul still had to treat them like they were new believers. So no doubt, some are not going to see their reflection as fleshly, uh, and they're going to argue about it. And they're so arrogant and so focused on themselves. And and so I really think Paul brings the focus on something that can perhaps be comprehended even by fleshly people, and that's this idea of reward. This idea that there's going to be an accounting and there's going to be some reward connected to their life. We who have children, of course, understand the useful, uh, how useful it is to uh, confirm proper behavior and use reward to do that. And, of course, biblical discipline that includes corporal punishment is also a major contributor in determining proper behavior. And we looked at all of that and, and some of those things last week as we focused on children and on parenting on Mother's Day during our child dedication service. And so you heard that just recently. But we know that even a young child can learn to look forward to positive reinforcement. If you do this, then this... So perhaps this is Paul's thinking, simple motivation to live in a certain way uh, as he appeals to them. But as he moves into this section, again, Paul wants the church to be confident. And and if you're fleshly, you won't be confident. See, have you met people like that? They've been living in the flesh for a long time, and then they're worried about their salvation. They're worried about the final judgment. They're worried about all kinds of things, right? Because they've become a forgetful hero, and they've slid backwards and not forwards, and they don't understand those things that quench the spirit in their life. And all of those things become uh, in play, but Paul wants the church to be confident, and he he he's helped them with their confidence in death, and he so he reminds them that they can be confident in the judgment of Christ if they make sure they take some time to evaluate their conduct. And so, in Second Corinthians five nine, that's precisely what he says. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, because we're going to see the Lord, and that is a sure. Reality of your life as a believer because you will stand before the Lord and he will transform you and you'll be in his presence because that's the case we have as our ambition. Whether we're waiting for the rapture or we go home before that, we have as our ambition and that Greek compound word philotimometha, the word philos, that's the first part, it's compound, to be familiar with and then timē has to do, that's the second part, has to do with the cost of something. So Paul says our ambition really helps us get this, we can grasp this from that word. It's an understanding and accepting of the cost of what? Well, being pleasing to God. We have as our ambition, we're accepting the cost. We understand and are familiar with what it takes to what? Be pleasing to the Lord. See? Paul says, because we're going to see him, we embrace and chase after the goal of being pleasing to God. Why? Well, then this second verse, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done whether good or bad and so Paul's just calling them and saying listen I want to draw your attention to your conduct because it's going to be called into question you're going to stand before the Lord and that's a sure fact a reality in your future and because that's the case you want to make as your ambition whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him see Paul's saying here there's coming a time when all the works of all believers will all be subject to a test to determine whether they're worthy of reward. That's the, that's the whole thing. Apart from what they may think about their Christian life, apart from their opinions about themselves, see, and we, we deceive ourselves a lot, don't we? We evaluate ourselves very easily as we think about our own conduct, and maybe in comparison to someone who appears to be worse than we are, we're easy on ourselves. But Paul says, in spite of what you might think about yourself and about your opinions about yourself, whatever the background, this should become very, very important to every believer because it's the reality of the future. And no doubt, uh, the Holy Spirit carries Paul along here again in order that each believer may prepare himself or herself for that coming time. That's the whole point of it. And Paul wants them to be confident. Confident in death, confident in judgment. Now, one of the greatest motivating forces in the life of Paul, as we said, was this very truth that Jesus was coming back and when he came back, it would be a time of reward. So Paul talks about it directly two times in two letters and he speaks of it in another passage that we're going to read in just a moment. He speaks of it in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse nine and ten. Now, this is a corresponding uh, topic in in the other letter we have preserved from Paul, and it says this: Therefore, we also have as our ambition. Uh, it's going to be corresponding to this. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether to be at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, from those passages and others, what I want to do as we kind of work our way through so we can have some handholds here, we're going to see the important principles that uh, so that we may pass the test in confidence. And so we see the first two right here in just general principles here. Confidence in judgment. Number one, we want to labor in a way that will please the Lord. That's just obvious, right, from the first one, from verse 9. And number two, Christ's judgment is coming, and he will evaluate our work and recompense us for that work. Just very obvious principles that are true for you. This is a reality for every believer. So if you're a note taker, you can find it on the back of your bulletin. Number one, we want to labor in such a way that will please the Lord. I think that's the general principle here from verse 9. Number two, Christ's judgment is coming, and he will evaluate our work and recompense us for that work. That's the second one in verse 10. Those things should motivate us. It motivated Paul. Now, a couple of illustrations uh, starting in Acts chapter 1. This is not unusual for us to see this. And you might think, what judgment for a believer? Yes, actually, yes. And we'll we'll clarify exactly what he's talking about here in a minute. But it shouldn't surprise us that this is the case. Acts chapter one verse seven says this. He says that Jesus is speaking, and it's, and he says to his disciples. It's not for you to know the, the times or the epics which the Father has fixed in his own authority. The disciples are questioning Jesus. Are you going to set up your kingdom now? Now are you going to establish your rule and all that stuff? They're excited about all of this. Jesus went through the cross. They didn't understand his death and all that. Now they're starting to put it all together. And he's saying, now are you going to set up your kingdom? And Jesus says, listen, it's not for you to understand the times and epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Uh, the Lord has plans for the earth. And He's we see later now he's going to establish the church. It's going to be uh, this wonderful messenger for the God gospel for the world. And so, but you will, he says, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So there's going to be a future time. The Lord's going to empower his disciples to do some things. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So he gives them uh, and every other believer after them, their marching orders. This is the fifth recorded time he said what we're supposed to be doing. So I think he means it don't you? They were some of his final words in the Gospels, and this is the final time that we see it, actually spoken by Jesus, so he gave us some marching orders, you're going to be my witnesses. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white stood beside them. So during that time, you know, he must have vanished into the cloud, and while they're looking up at the cloud and Jesus disappears into it, two guys show up. A little surprising, I would imagine. A little startling as they watch Jesus disappear and all the emotion that's there and here's two guys. And anytime angels appear to people on earth, it's intimidating. Okay? And they also said, so the guys are looking up, Jesus is leaving, what are we gonna do now? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now just, I'm going to pause right there and we won't break it all down, but I think it's just obvious a few things that we can pull from that passage, okay? Our principles here, I think, are repeated. And that is the implied meaning from the angels. That Jesus is coming and he is coming to reward those who faithfully served him. And obviously, because he's coming... I think we can understand that it's implied that there's gonna be a checkup on his followers. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if your boss says, and, and when I was in college uh, in Arizona, I, I worked construction early, I took classes in the afternoon, and so you know, my boss would say, okay, I want, I want you to clean up this room right here, and then uh, I'm gonna come back and give you the next thing to do. Well, the, fact that the last statement that I'm gonna come back and give you the next thing to do would imply that he's gonna come and make sure I did the first one right, right. And I don't think it's surprising to us that Jesus gives marching orders five times and then the angels remind them, as he had told them numerous times, I will return. And they just he just says, listen, I'm going to return. And the angels say, he's going to come back and he's going to check up. So it shouldn't surprise us. So then what's the implied uh, exhortation? Get busy. Why are you standing here looking up into the sky? He told you that he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He told you where that's going to happen. And then he told you what you're supposed to do. Be my witnesses. So get rolling. Or the south, get her done. First Thessalonians four sixteen, Paul encouraged the believers with this reality, You're going to be caught up to meet the Lord. Paul prepared himself for that. It wasn't that he wanted for himself all kinds of glory and honor. It was just that if he was going to be involved in anything, then he was going to do it to his maximum ability. The attitude really is illustrated very well in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four by Paul. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you can win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air. When we go to track meets, and I've had the joy of, of uh, coaching for some time, um, you know, in track practice, we pace. If you're a track guy, you know what we mean. Uh, we pace so that we understand what it feels like to run at a certain pace so that when you get to the end of uh, whatever race you're in, when you actually compete, you're at the time you want to be. So we practice those times in short sections so you can feel in your body what that feels like when you go the whole route. Okay. And so, but when it comes time to compete, it's not time to pace anymore, is it? What's it time to do? It's time to run as one who wants to get the prize. So if you've if you've conditioned yourself in such a way that you're ready to run and your body uh, can cash the check your brain wants to write, then you're in good shape. You can trust that training, right? And you get out there, and perhaps the guy you're running against, he's U.S. number one, and he's going to pace at a certain pace. But you've you've trained, and so you're going to stay. See, you're running to win now. You're not just practicing anymore. And Paul's really saying that. He says, not only are you going to run to win, you're going to run in a certain direction. Okay? You have to compete according to the rules. If you're running a four-by-four, you have to stay in your lane the whole way. You can't cross over. And when you hand off the baton, if you cross over to somebody else's lane, you're disqualified. So lots of rules for competing. And Paul says, listen, you already know there's some rules, so run that way. Okay? So confident judgment principle number three, as you can see there at the bottom, if you're a believer, do your ministry with all your effort. That's the point. You know what the rules are. You know what I've said to do. Now do that. See? And what we're going to see, uh, we're going to see those principles really repeated over and over again. So they must be important. If Paul continues to repeat them, you know you need to look at them. But if, if you look at the state of, of personal ministry among modern believers, you would think there wasn't any instruction at all. People come to church regularly on Sunday and Wednesday and do nothing at all to further the ministry. Not only that, they're not actively witnessing either. Beloved, don't you understand that if you run the race, you run to get the prize, do you not understand that the same one who gave you your salvation, gave you marching orders and said, do these things and I'm going to come back and check. Please understand this. This is the whole point of the passage. Because you're going to be before the Lord... Run in such a way as to get the prize. Because you're going to stand before the Lord, understand that we want to be pleasing to Him whether we're absent or present with Him. Do you see that? If you look at the modern church, you would think there wasn't any instruction at all. And you'd probably certainly not think there was, you would probably certainly think there wasn't any test coming, see. It's kind of like many high school classrooms if you're a teacher, where half the students have their head down on the desk during the lecture as if there's never going to be a paper and there's never going to be an exam, right? I mean, you know this. If you've subbed or if you've taught, you know how people, if you homeschool and your little one's got his head on the desk and you're talking, he's forgotten that there's going to be an exam, right? And we see it expressed again and again to those who've been made righteous in, in Romans 12. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. If Paul was going to run a race, he was going to run it with one thing in mind, and that was to win. In serving, he told the church at Rome to be diligent and fervent. Own your ministry. Be fervent about it. Excited. Make it happen. Because it's yours. Do it with all your heart. Paul, Paul knew the truth spoken by Jesus in Revelation 22.12. Behold, I am coming quickly. Mark it. And my reward is with me to render every man according to what he's done. That's very similar language, is it not? I'm coming and my reward is with me. What's it mean? I'm going to reward when I see them, see. Now we see the same warning the same warning given to the church earlier in Paul's writings. So, here's here's the parallel passage that I want you to see. This is kind of the run-up to the passage in question. Just to give you some context. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What is then is Apollos, and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed? Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. So Paul is beginning to let them know here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, If there's a judgment coming, God's the one who's going to judge that, he's going to give the reward. He'll put his stamp of approval and give out his opinion at a later time based on qualifications that he set up. And not only that, he will evaluate all of it. Verse 9 says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In verse 13, each man's work will become evident. Every believer's work is going to be brought into account. Some are going to plant. Some are going to water. God's going to cause the growth. Everybody has a job to do. They're supposed to be doing it. God's going to come back because uh, there's fellow workers. There's field. There's building. And each man's work will become evident. Now, just as a footnote, judgments are not foreign to the Scripture. Uh, There are many judgments spoken about in the Scriptures. Scriptures talk about the judgment of Israel. Uh, and there are numerous places and times, both past and future, listed in Scripture for us concerning Israel. So we know that that's actually the, the, the case, and there are some still remaining in the future. Uh, the judgment of the enemies of Israel is spoken of often in Scripture. The Scripture talks about the judgment of sin on the cross. 1 Corinthians 11:31. we see that we're supposed to judge ourselves, and we could avoid being disciplined by God. So self-judgment, that's right there before uh, communion. Make sure you judge yourselves rightly. Take a good look at yourself. And make sure you're doing what you should do, not sharing in the deeds that crucified Christ. And we talk about that often when we take communion. We have the seal trumpets and bold judgments poured out on the earth during the seven-year tribulation time. Scripture speaks of the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. Those who are alive at the end of the seven-year tribulation, those who are redeemed and those who are not, are going to be judged. Revelation 20 talks about the judgment of the unsaved at the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And of course, the judgment we're looking at right now is the judgment of believers' works or the judgment seat of Christ. Your scripture may say bema seat. And I've had a number of questions about what does it mean, bema? Well, that's just a Greek word for elevated. Paul Paul is calling to their mind something they would know well with Greek games. When they would finish the competition, they would come underneath an elevated seat where the judges sat, and they would receive their reward uh, for whatever place they came in. And so Paul uses that illustration to say this is where the believers are going to be. There's an elevated seat Christ will be there and he will reward believers for their what they've done And so this judgment seat of christ is what we're talking about now And there's coming a day when we will be judged on the basis of what we've done And that's just very very simple and very very clear in the scriptures. Now we know uh, Who is the judge because john 5 22? Tells us for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so who's the judge jesus is okay and and that's why it's called the judgment seat of Jesus or judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, both refer to it with those terms. Now, we know the purpose of the judgment because Romans 14, 12 tells us the purpose. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That That's the purpose. You're going to give an account of yourself. And so then it makes sense then in 2 Corinthians 5, 10... To read, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Because we were given jobs to do, it shouldn't surprise us that there will be an accounting. Now, as I, just as a call out here, and I want to make sure you understand this, I know you know this already, but when, when we read the passage, we're not, not, we're not talking about Peter sitting at the gate in heaven, checking your qualifications or measuring your good deeds and your bad deeds to see if you can be admitted. Okay, And I say that really tongue-in-cheek. I'm just poking a little fun. I know you know that that's not the case. But we see a lot of cartoons like that where somebody's sitting at the gates of heaven saying, nope, you can't come in. Yes, you can't come in, that kind of thing. Okay, That's not what we're talking about. The reality of heaven is this. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't any future judgment to see whether you get into heaven or not. Your faith in Jesus... Already sealed that you're already counted as a citizen of heaven. Do you understand that? So this is not some question about whether you get into heaven because of the deeds you did after you were born again Now again for clarification Some say that the judgment seat of christ is to punish believers for the sins they committed After they were saved but if that were true We would be spending a good portion of the eternal state doing just that But the fact of the matter is in colossians chapter 2 we have very clear clarification here when you were dead in your trespasses and in the circumcision of your flesh, that means when you were unredeemed, he made you alive together with him. So you came to faith. You trusted Christ as your Savior, confessed your sin and repented. You came to faith. You came alive with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How many did he forgive? All. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What happened to the certificate? It was canceled. Okay, why? Because it was paid in full. Christ paid it. He was our substitution. With which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now remember, all of your sin was future when he died on the cross. All of it. Okay? He just packaged them all up and took them to the cross and bore them all. So you'll never be condemned. Do you understand? And just to solidify that in your mind, a few illustrations, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're born again, that describes you. You're in Christ Jesus. Okay. You're buried in the likeness of His death and raised in the likeness of His resurrection. You are in Him and He by His Spirit resides in you for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death never condemned okay Romans 8:33 says who will bring a charge against God's elect who is the one who justifies who is who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is he who died yes rather who was raised who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us so what's the answer to the rhetorical question nobody can the only and, and beloved Mark this, the only ones that could are the ones that won't. Do you see? That's the whole point of the passage. The ones that could condemn you are the very ones who will not condemn you. God's already declared us righteous. There aren't any sins for which we have to pay. So when we think about the judgment seat of Christ, don't be thinking about punishment for sins committed after salvation because all your sins were future when he nailed them to the cross when you came to faith. And you can rejoice in that every day, okay? All right, now let's go to First Corinthians 3. Let's look at the judgment as it appears here. Because the passage and our current one work together with others really to paint for us a very clear picture of this coming judgment. It was the primary motivator for Paul. It should be the primary motivator for us. We won't get through all of it today uh, because I want to save some. There's, there's a really great section I want to make sure we cover very clearly uh, how, we can, how we can judge what it is that we're doing and how it's adding up and what it's building and we're going to take some time next week to do that lord willing But this passage in our current one really work together To paint a really clear picture of the coming judgment and how we can be confident because that's paul's point here in second corinthians Chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. He wants us to be confident in judgment So first corinthians three ten it says according to the grace of god, which was given me. So paul is speaking here Like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation and another is building on it But each man must be careful how he builds on it now Let's pause right there. Obviously, Paul is is starting with leaders... And that follows. It's going to include every believer because all believers have ministry. But he starts with leaders. And now here Paul introduces to him, us to himself as a master builder and a wise one at that. Okay. Now, he was the guy who went around and he started churches. And in fact, he wrote to the Romans, I don't go to certain places because I don't want to build over someone else's foundation. And that provides him then with an illustration that he's going to use here for us to understand what the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ looks like. And strictly, he wanted to go where Christ had not been named. And there he would win people to Christ. And he would teach at first the milk of the word, basic doctrine, and he would establish a foundation on Christ. In Corinth, when he came there, these folks to whom he's writing, he stayed 18 months. Remember, he went to the synagogue, and then everybody got mad. So he left the synagogue, and he stayed next door, and won won the leader of the synagogue over, and then a whole bunch of other people. And he's very discouraged because it seemed like he's just struggling against uh, this huge tidal wave of carnality. And then the Lord comes to him privately and says, You know, don't be worried. I have many people in this city. Just stay diligent. Nothing's going to happen to you. Be faithful. And so Paul just sticks around, and for 18 months, he's preaching there. And and then he goes to Ephesus. He stays there for three years. Thessalonica, he stayed less than a month. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, did a faster work there. And so Paul just goes, and he just stays, and he does what he's going to do, and he, and he teaches the basic—he uh, gives out the gospel. People come to faith. He teaches the milk of the word, basic doctrine of Christ, and people start to grow. So this is Paul's pattern. And Paul says, now, according to the grace of God, which was given to me— so he's not saying that he's the most important one, okay? That would just exacerbate the problem. He's not saying, I'm the major guy. All he's saying is, I did it only because God was gracious enough to commit the ministry to me. That's all. I don't claim anything. It's very common for Paul. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, he says, uh, So then neither is he the, no, so there's neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. According to the grace given to me, which uh, grace was God that was given to me. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth according then to God's work. Grace means undeserved favor. It was God in me. It, I, it was God operating. Then in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse seven, he speaks about his ministry to the Gentiles. He says, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So he says, Listen, I'm not worthy. It was just a job I was given, and this is what I did. See, Colossians chapter 1, 28, says much the same thing. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man completing Christ for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power which mightily works in me see God's at work in me says Paul to accomplish his own plan so he's not taking any credit he's not saying you know I'm the greatest because I laid the foundation everyone else has to add to what I've done no he just says this is God's grace I have laid the foundation God brought me to Corinth I preached Christ you were saved and, and uh, the church began 18 months I gave you sound doctrine I'm a wise master builder by grace and by grace alone. If it were not for God's power and for God's grace, I'd still be persecuting and be a blasphemer, okay? So that's that's Paul's evaluation of himself. So he says this, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. Now, wise master builder, Greek adjective sophos, that's a compound now where architectone, sophos literally means skillful. I'm a skillful, uh, I'm skillful, I know what I'm doing. He knew how to labor to get it done. I labored more than all the other apostles. Remember Paul? He talked about this. That, that it was any better. He just worked hard. Okay? In the book of Acts, we see that he went on into a town and, you know, approached the synagogue. He tried to win the Jews to Christ. You know, got a few Jewish converts. They began to move in, into the Gentile community with to win them to Christ, of course. As often as not, after that, he used usually be stoned or or flogged or, or uh, you know, dragged to the city center. He'd have to be let down, you know, from the city wall in a basket. I mean, not exactly what we would consider that was a successful church plant okay? but he planted the church and he got booted out of the city or, or stoned or, or whatever had to run for his life that didn't stop him though he knew exactly what he was doing right? and he even said I've had, the, I've had the sentence of death on me many times and I'm not worried about it because the Lord can raise the dead so if he's not done with me and they kill me he can raise me back to life so Paul was okay with it and besides he'd rather be with the Lord anyway so it didn't really matter I'm, what I'm saying is that I think it just flies in the face of the typical church planting books and church growth books that, you know, you have to be pleasing to everybody and everybody has to be on board with you and as if the church is always going to be spiritual and always agree with everything you're going to say, okay? That's just not the case, and we don't see that model in the New Testament anywhere, and Paul certainly didn't model it. But he didn't stop him. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he wasn't afraid to do it. And when he built a building, his building was solid and abiding. And so it's a sophos, and then the other word, architectone, and you hear the word there, architect, okay, but it's not just architect here. It doesn't simply mean someone who drew it up. The word is somebody who draws the plan and builds the building, it's the whole package there. Today you would think of it as a combination of architect and builder, architect and um, and contractor. It's not just a planner and a strategist. Yeah, I didn't just plan the work. He says, he says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. Now, just as a footnote, um, there were no uninvolved strategists in the New Testament era. Okay, nobody was sitting in the back, kind of. Okay, this is what you need to do, or this is this is this is your plan, and you know, just do this and do this, and you know, whatever. You know, uh, no think tanks. Okay. Um, No lobbyists just telling everybody what to do but not doing it You know in the new testament you don't find anybody just manning the home office And just kind of sending people out, you know, everybody's out there doing it Therefore we know Because we're going to see the lord Whether absent from him or present we are our uh, desires to be pleasing to him, right? So paul knows what he's doing he goes and does it and it stands And it says, I laid, I'm a master builder, so I laid, that's from the Greek verb tithemi, it's aristactive indicative. In other words, in the past, there's a point with continuing results that you can see. Okay, somebody came to faith, uh, the church began to be built, and you can see that. Uh, The apostles and the prophets did the work, Uh, we don't need a new foundation, the foundation has already been laid. And now he says, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. And in the case of Corinth, the next guy was Apollos. And, and Apollos built on what Paul had begun. Apollos was followed by others. And, uh, tough church, right? After Apollos left, uh, Paul approached him later and said, hey, could you go back? And it was like, not right now. You know, and so you gotta be some kind of church if a guy won't go back and minister there, okay? So, difficult church, hardship all over the place, carnal, fleshly kind of church, but still the foundation was laid, and Paul is calling them to realize you have been born again, and there's going to be an accounting, and you ought to sit up and take notice. So, Apollos follows Paul, others follow Apollos, and all the believers really are part of it, because he says at the end of verse 10, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. Epoi kodomeo. That's the building that's still going on present active indicative a constant building it hasn't stopped the foundation was laid in Christ and now there's building going on and each man has to be careful how he builds so we're building on what's already been done the word for building is in the present tense another continually builds on it the foundation was laid that's Christ we're building on that foundation so Paul's making it clear then from 1 Corinthians 3 a dynamic of the judgment seat of Christ I hope you catch that and as we'll see, he will build on this understanding in Second Corinthians 5. But here Paul says, like a wide master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, just this note. Some people would like to restrict this passage only to pastors and evangelists and teachers. Um, and they would say it's only referring to those who are in leadership. And in a primary sense, uh, that certainly, uh, considering that Paul is dealing with a division in the church, you know, centered on criticism, and I prefer Paul, I prefer Peter, I prefer Apollos, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that initial focus certainly on that position, you've got to be careful how you build, would certainly be accurate they are the ones in the truest sense who are building the structure and planting and watering or whatever from verse 9 but When Paul says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it in verse 13. And then he says, and each man's work will become evident. And then verse, in verse 13, he says, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And then later in verse 14, the beginning of verse 15, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. You gotta realize he's taking in a lot bigger pat, a lot bigger swath than just those who are leading the church. He begins to take in the whole church and you certainly can't you can't deny that in second Corinthians five where Paul's audience obviously is the whole church and he says this, for we must all appear before the Judgment seat of Christ. you realize then without a doubt that he's moved from leadership to everybody because everybody has a ministry you see or is supposed to. We must all appear before the Judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. so we have to take the passage as broad enough to make it include every believer because that's Paul's intent now though all of us are not in the same degree of building on that apost- apostolic foundation we're all building on it because every one of us is doing something and that, that is the confident judgment principle number four I want you to grab every one of us has a ministry based on the foundation that's been laid and we are to be careful how we build on it so that's I, you, you start to get the foundation of where this judgment is is going to evaluate see. Uh, There's some things that are true about you that whether or not you understand them or not, these things are facts. You have a foundation, if you're born again, a foundation which is Christ. And now you are building on that foundation, see, by the things that you do, the deeds that you do uh, on on a daily basis. So Paul shows here that, just to sum up and jump ahead a little bit for next week, all believers are building a spiritual building. And they're building that building out of certain materials. And there is coming a fiery test and the fire will be applied to their building, and only what's left will be rewarded. We're going to see this at at length next time. It doesn't have anything to do with punishment or judgment for sin. It only has to do with what remains, okay? I think we've established that. And then that's what verse 15 confirms. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So when you get to the judgment seat, there's going to be a lot of people surprised with what is left after the test, see? Some people are going to think they've really made a great contribution and are not going to have, and they're not going to have anything left. They're going to evaluate their own life and the things that they've done, and we're going to see how you can do that next time. They're going to evaluate their own life and the things they've done since Christ uh, they came to Christ, and they're going to think it's great, and they're not going to have anything left. And verse fifteen indicates he'll suffer loss, and the idea being, as a house fire sometimes consumes everything, so the total of a life's work wasn't of the right materials and it's consumed and all you have left is just what's on your back and that's what we see, you just have your robe of righteousness you're born again, you're not going to be judged for sin but you don't have anything left to show of a lifetime of building on a foundation but to use the wrong material and some saints are going to go uh, are going to have this greatest of rewards of all and after the test gets all finished some or most of, or everything will still remain See, and there's reward from the Lord as a result of that so don't think it's just going to be everybody gets first, okay? Everybody gets a medal, you know, like it is today. You know, and to, we don't want to judge anybody. We don't want to say anybody came in third, right? We just all, we're all great. Well, we find that that's not the case. We are all born again, and we're all justified in his sight, and we're all holy. But it matters what you're doing. And Paul takes a lot of time to talk about it. And I truly think that 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6 really is speaking about the same issue. A primary focus on pastors and teachers, but a broader application. So, before we close, I just want to read this. I, I want you. To, I'm just going to make a few comments, but you kind of see this this, this is a general understanding of Paul as he understands his own life and the life of those who who are followers of Christ. And um, flip over there if you would. You can read it in your copy, or I'll put it on the screen for you. Whatever you'd like. First Corinthians 4:1. Paul says, "Let a man regard us in this manner," as he talks about his own ministry as he talks about those who are in ministry with him, let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, stewards, and are steward, stewards, and a stewards is to tell the truth and that's what I'm doing, Paul says. But whether you think I am or not, I am. Uh, but to me, he says, a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted just because I don't know that I've done anything wrong or that I've been on the wrong track that doesn't acquit me. Uh, I just, my conscience is clear. We talked a lot about this conscience and we saw it early in Second Corinthians. So if you've been with us, you're familiar with it. You can, you can go online and catch up if you want. But the one who examines me is the Lord. So ultimately, he says, it, it doesn't really matter what you think about me. Paul says, I, I have, my conscience is clear. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And the one who judges me or examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. So this still has to do with building and with ministry, with the judgment seat of Christ. Same topic. Don't judge before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So in other words, don't run ahead of God and try to evaluate everything. Okay, you can't do that you don't have the perspective you don't know whether a man's ministry is all it ought to be Or not only god knows that okay You say but it looks good on the outside or or, or it looks pretty shabby on the outside Well, those aren't the criteria, are they? Uh, what, What you think it may look like or what you think it may not look like or what you think it should look like That's not the criteria for the judgment So Paul just says, you know, just wait therefore do not go on passing judgment Before the time but wait until the lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness And disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from god now I I would say this as I pause i'm going to wrap up in a minute I don't want you to take that as somehow that got you off the hook. Well, nobody really knows what i've been doing No, that's not true There are some fruit that are bore from faithful service and listen beloved if you're not serving anywhere Everybody already knows that. Okay, that's not a secret you haven't given your life away for the for the ministry of Christ. And I'm not talking about yesterday and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. I'm talking about now, okay? Because you're still building. As long as you're alive, you're still building, okay? So don't, don't let that get you off the hook. What what uh, Paul is saying here is people who are ministering faithfully, you may think that's kind of a shabby job, but that's, that's a good job or whatever. You don't know, okay? And there's a lot of factors that are contributing to all of this. And so Paul says, just, you know, just hold on. And you can get the idea that maybe, you know, God is as concerned with motive as he is with actual deed, right? I mean, there's some other things that are contributing here besides just what's obviously on the outside. Just like he's more concerned with labor than he is with success from verse 8. Okay, if it was only about hard work, then everybody's ministry would be super successful, right? And we have mega churches everywhere. It's not just about hard work, is it? It's also about what's going on in the life of the church and what the Holy Spirit's doing in the lives of believers and whether they're responding or not and all of that. There's a whole bunch of factors and you know this. We've talked about this, okay? And we're going to look at some of these things more closely next week, Lord willing. Really. But verse 6, he says, Now, these things, brethren, mark this, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. In other words, we'll become the example, but it actually applies to you. Okay, uh, you can you can look at us and say, okay, he's doing a good job, he's doing a bad job. I can't stand Paul. Please don't come back, or or Apollos was much better than Paul, or Peter was much better, you know, or I was, you know, under Jesus' discipleship, so he's way better, you know, all that kind of stuff. Paul says, listen, I'm just applying this to, you know, I, I'm just using uh, myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what's written. So the primary focus Paul says was to Apollos and I and our ministries, but. It's much broader than that there is an obviously much wider application here So he says this so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other So their pride their worldly wisdom their fleshliness had have led to all of these issues. So Paul says understand something See there's an appointment with the court for every believer at the judgment seat of christ And at that point all the motives and the underlying issues will all be brought to test of purity And then everything will be clear so kind of hold on before you get there. And the way that will happen is revealed to us in a construction illustration. Look back quickly to chapter 3. We'll just read these verses and comment briefly and close until next week. Verse three, Chapter 3, verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident... For the day will show it Because it will be revealed with fire And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work So Paul laid uh, laid a foundation in Corinth The foundation of Christ The foundation of Christianity What is that? Is that our ethics? Is that our morality? You know Is it the fact that we're kind to people? That we're nice? That we're gentle? We're loving? We take care of the poor? What is the foundation of Christianity? Is it tradition? Is it the historical church? No It's Jesus Right? It's Jesus Jesus It's been confused in the modern church today, okay, but the foundation is jesus Okay, we can only build on the true doctrine of christ. The foundation is christ in that sense The foundation is the whole of the word of god apostolic doctrine was all about christ The whole new testament is christ his life on earth is in the gospels christ active establishing the church That's the book of acts, you know the believer's life as the church explained and directed. That's the epistles Okay, how do you actually work this all out inside the, uh, the, uh, the body of believers? That's the epistles. The book of Revelation is written to tell us that Christ is yet alive and reigning and will return. The revealed Christ is the foundation on which all building is to occur. We can't have a spiritual house built on the traditions of men. We don't have a spiritual house built on whether you're kind or not or you take care of the poor. It's on Christ. Okay? It's not built on morality or doing good, you know, philanthropy, self righteousness. The only foundation for for the corporate life, which is is the church is Jesus. That's the foundation. That's where it goes. Everything else fails. Okay, and and the only foundation upon which a man may build a fitting temple for God is Jesus, and He is explained and demonstrated in the Word of God. And being born again is the starting point. So verse twelve says, "If any man builds on the foundation with gold, so the foundation is Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the foundation of your salvation." Okay. If any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each man's work will become evident. So now, once the foundation is laid, that assumes saving faith in this context, on top of that foundation, the materials for building are placed. And now we're going to build on that foundation as Christ. So, how are we going to build? Let's see? Just picture in your mind then. Uh, and and we close this with this just picture in your mind a foundation out there on this lot which is the time span of your physical life okay you have this foundation on this lot and and the time span is your physical life okay and all there is is the foundation and you're going to build your life on that from the time you came to faith from that point in time until the time you are raptured or taken away in death you are building there's only one foundation but did you know there's many materials you could be building with and you perhaps have been building with because you've been building since you came to faith. So how do I know what materials I'm using? Well, there's some clues in scripture that we're going to look at next time and help us determine what we've been building with and what perhaps we might want to change to if that's the case. And we'll look at that next time. This is be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you today for... The wonder of your word, we say that often, but it is so marvelous to look at this. To look at how much you love us that you've redeemed us, you you've uh, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. Shouldn't surprise us that you had things for us to do. It shouldn't surprise us that the work we do will be evaluated by you. And you've given that judgment to your son, and it's not for condemnation. It's just simply the fire will test what we built. Whatever is burned up is not eternal and won't last. Whatever's left, that's where the reward comes. It's not a dead heat. We don't all finish in first place. We all finish with you forever. But what follows us here will really depend on what we've been doing since we came to faith. And so, Father, I pray that you keep that foremost in our mind. It was of primary importance to Paul. The future meeting with Christ was the motivation for everything that he did and the way that he did everything. Because you evaluate motive and you evaluate attitude and hidden thoughts and and all the other reasons why we do what we do. Well, the church will see me and I'll do it. Uh, My wife expects me to do it. I'm going to do it. All of wood, hay, straw. I'm going to do it for your glory, Lord. It's going to hurt. It's going to be, it's going to be uh, sacrificial. I'm not comfortable with it, Lord, but I'm going to do it because it's for your glory, and I want you to receive glory. I want people to see you—gold, silver, costly stone. And Father, I pray that you'll begin to help us take a very close look at who we are, how we spend our time whether or not we've been giving ourselves away in ministry, whether or not we have, we have been faithful witnesses for you. Fortunately, it appears that you've given us more time. We assume that you'll give us tomorrow, and perhaps many more tomorrows after that where we can build on this foundation, on our lot, which is our life, things that will last for your own glory, for which we will receive reward and honor you then forever, be able to worship you in such a way forever because of how we spend our time here. And Lord, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the sobering reality of it, perhaps. We thank you for the rejoicing, perhaps, in some lives because... uh, they've just done what they've done for you. Lord, you're the one who knows the hearts and minds, and you can judge correctly, and so I pray that you'll help us understand by your Holy Spirit what you would like us to do in response to very early parts of this message. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said.